Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Liberals have concluded agreements with seven provinces and one territory to create that $10 a day childcare spaces that they talked about during the campaign. The Ford government here in Ontario, though, has yet to sign the deal with Ottawa. They say they want more money. We'll talk about that. 571 days after the U.S. closed its land borders with Canada and Mexico, the reopening is finally on the horizon. What does this mean for border cities like Niagara Falls? We'll talk with the mayor to talk about all the details and what's been happening there. Dr. Chris Kilford joins us also to explain the dilemma leaders are facing with sending aid to the Taliban-run Afghanistan. And resistance continues on Canada's position on the Line 5 pipeline. U.S. opponents are urging the White House to reject Canada's treaty gambit. More details on that coming up as well. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, I want to talk about uh, child care and daycare. And I know that was talked about an awful lot during the federal election. All three major parties had a, a strong position on this. Uh, the one that uh, the Trudeau government, of course, had already initiated or begun uh, to implement anyway. So the one that's probably going to win out since they won their election again. Uh, but very much depends on provincial buy-in in situations like this. So, okay, who's going to be on side and who's going to actually, uh, you know, be on there? And, well, we've got a number of provinces that have already jumped in on one territory. The province of Ontario is key. I mean, it's it's the most populous province, and you'd like to think that they're going to be on side with this. Before the election, uh, the Premier said that they thought they could have an agreement here with the federal government, so it looked pretty promising. Well, now uh, the word from Queen's Park is, well, it's not enough money. Uh, and they want more money for Ontario than the other provinces and more money than the federal government had already laid out. Uh, does that put the kibosh on this plan? And if so, what are the implications for families right here in Ontario? Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome Carolyn Ferns to the program. Carolyn is the policy coordinator of the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. Uh, Carolyn, pleasure to have you on the program. i got to ask you right off the top, were you surprised by all of a sudden this hardline position the Ontario government's taking here? Yeah, you know, I really was surprised because, uh, you know, it... I was hopeful that Ontario might sign on before the the federal election happened back in the summer. Um, And, you know, they didn't get it done. But after the writ dropped, you know, Education Minister Stephen Lecce said that they had been at the negotiating table, you know, right up until then. And and they were hopeful that things would would happen. Um, And, you know, of course, in these kinds of negotiations, it's not typical for one party to suddenly go to the press. You know, I mean, usually these things happen. um, There's collaboration. And then there's an announcement that a deal has been signed. And that's what's happened with all of the other eight provinces and territories that have signed on. Um, so then it was a bit of a surprise to see over the weekend the, the Ford government suddenly coming out with this claim that they're not getting enough money or they're not getting a fair shake. Um, and some sort of convoluted reasoning that I, I still can't quite work out where they think that because Ontario has full-day kindergarten, they should somehow be getting more money um, from the federal government for for child care. Um, so, yeah, it was it was surprising. I, I, I don't want to drag you into the political weeds too much here, but, I mean, there is a political consequence to this, too. We all know there's going to be a provincial election in yeah. June of next year. Uh, and, and I got to wonder, Carolyn, uh, you know, whoever is, is advising the premier in a situation like this, uh, do they really want to go into this election without a child care deal? Uh, yeah, you know, and are they going to try to paint the federal government as the bad guys when seven other provinces have already signed on? Yeah, that's a really good question and a really good point, um, because I think that, you know, since the federal election has happened and the federal government has a renewed mandate, there was strong support for child care. You know, not just the, the liberals, but the NDP and Greens all had very similar child care policies. And in the end, that won the day. 
Um, the federal government is in a much stronger position now um, to go into negotiations. And the provincial government uh, doesn't really have a leg to stand on. The, the federal government is coming with a lot of money, um, $10 billion or more over the next five years for Ontario for childcare. Now, to put that into perspective, that would more than double Ontario's childcare budget. Um, and what's curious about this demand that, that the Ford government wants more money is that they haven't really shown what their plan is to spend the money that's on offer. Um, and the Ford government has never made childcare a priority for their government. It wasn't mentioned in their recent throne speech. Um, they've tried to cut childcare, provincial childcare funding in the past. Well, they did right off the, the bat, first, didn't they? Yeah. When they got, the when they got elected they did in the last when they election. Were elected was to cancel the, the provincial plan for free preschool age childcare. So it seems strange that they're now turning around and saying, oh, we actually want to have more money for this. Well, okay, if childcare is really a priority for the Ford government all of a sudden, great, you know, show us the plan that they have to, to move forward and why they think that, that Ontario really needs to have more money to lower childcare fees, to raise wages for early childhood educators and to expand childcare services, um, because that would be really great news. I mean, if he wants to make this, and I should say not just the premier himself, but I mean his government wants to make this a partisan issue, uh, I, I think that they're, they're going down the wrong road here. Yeah. Uh, you look at the provinces that have already agreed to this, uh, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, uh, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, Labrador, and of course the Yukon Territory. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any liberal governments there. This is not a partisan issue. And and actually, people like uh, Premier Mo in Saskatchewan, uh, and and even in Manitoba and British Columbia, those two premiers have been rather critical of an awful lot of the federal government stuff. But they mm -hmm. saw the benefit in what this was going to do for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really this is a classic example, I guess, of the federal government stepping in and say, "We can help you with this, and here's a mm -hmm. ton of money." Uh, and yeah. it, for for the Ford government to come back and say, "Well, that's not enough," uh, are they trying to scuttle? the deal yeah it, it that's what it, it feels like it feels like this is you know a delay tactic or that they're trying to make a, a wedge issue out of this and if that's what uh the Ford government is trying to do i agree with you bill that it, it's the wrong way to go because um for one parents have no time for this kind of partisan bickering especially on an issue like child care ontario has the highest child care fees in the country um, you know, parents paying for infant child care right now are paying sometimes more than $2,000 a month. This plan would cut child care fees in half by next year if Ontario signs on. So, you know, parents are waiting for that relief. I've, I've heard from, um, from child care operators who say they've had parents calling saying, oh, are, are you going to have $10 child care now? They're waiting for this to happen. And so there's really little appetite from, from parents and, and uh, I'd say from Ontario voters um, on on any delaying this anymore, I, I can't really get my head around this idea that it's not enough. And I, I, I tried to go over this again last night. And I'm sure you've gone over it a number of times, Carolyn, uh, about their their mathematical approach to this. This doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're machination here seems to be two 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 and plus two equals six uh yeah. and, and and you know they just don't seem to follow the logic that other provinces have already done uh yeah. the, the costs are the cost though anybody who's who's got a child or a couple of children maybe uh in child care knows how, how problematic that can be for families and how problematic mm -hmm. it's been uh 
and, and if they're going to make this a priority, I can't understand why they're all of a sudden deciding to draw a line in the sand and say, give us more money. Uh, I, I know there's been no official response from, from the, the Trudeau government about this, but I know uh, one of the ministers in charge, Dominic LeBlanc, basically said, we're not going to do that. I mean, because, again, from the political standpoint, if they say yes to this, then all the other provinces mm-hmm. that have already signed on are going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you're giving more money? Uh, you know, how about a little love over here, too? It, it yeah. will mess the whole thing up. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the reality is these kinds of um, agreements, you know, uh, bilateral agreements with provinces and territories, they're done according to a formula. You know, it's not like you can you can go in and, and suddenly like, you know, bargain for, for some better deal in a, in a really huge way. It's it, it's done by a formula. And this uh, this formula is based on child population, the, the population of, of children under the age of 12 in the province. Um, and that's what every other province and territory has signed on to so far that, that that have signed on to the deal, and and so that's what's on offer. And it's a lot of money, um, you know, to to meet these objectives. And I think that you know it's there's enough on the table to really ask the Ford government. You know, before you start complaining that the federal government isn't coming with enough, maybe reflect on what your government, what the province of Ontario, which has primary responsibility for childcare in the province, what are they doing um, to make this issue better? What are they doing to help affordability for families to address the workforce shortage in childcare and to expand services? Um, because they need to have a real plan to do it. One of the reasons that we're you know, really pushing so hard and childcare advocates are pushing for this to happen quickly is because we know that once the deal signed, that's just step one. Then we have to get to work on actually making this happen in communities across the province. And again, their, their, their mathematics here just doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, they say we have 40% of the population, we want 40% of the amount that they're pledging. Uh, which, you know, there's, there's no rationale for that. But as a matter of fact, the money that Ottawa has allocated uh, for this deal, potentially for Ontario, is about 33.5% uh, for. So, I mean, we're in the ballpark. So why, now they're just nitpicking yeah. about a 6.5% uh, increase mm-hmm. here and with no justification to say it's going on. Uh, no. And I, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I'm flummoxed as to what the rationale here and what they think they're mm-hmm. going to accomplish uh, because yeah. I can't see that there's any negotiation, but it's pretty sure. Ontario and, and Alberta will probably be the holdouts here because Jason mm-hmm. Kenney disagrees with everything the federal government says. Mm-hmm. So we know that already. That's going to be a problem. But look at the popularity rating that Mr. Kenny has, uh, Premier Kenny has got right now. I mean, you know, th- we've seen this happen before. I, and, I, you know, history should teach us something here, I would think, Carolyn. Uh, when the Ford government was elected, two of the first things they did was they canceled all the environmental policies of the previous government. Uh, mm-hmm. Lost that battle in court, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And they canceled the daycare program program that was already being initiated and uh, now they're saying well you know we don't have one and we, we need even more well that's their own fault you know that, yeah. that's like that old joke about you know somebody who kills both parents and says don't punish me i'm an orphan now yeah you know, i mean come on you created this circumstance the government's coming the federal government is coming to help you right here and yeah. you're your point about the last election, I think, is, is very uh, germane to this. Uh, the Conservative Party, uh, under Aaron O'Toole, presented a much different platform. And basically, the Canadian voters rejected it. I mean, you and mm-hmm. I both know that environmental mm-hmm. issues and daycare were probably the two key issues. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be the key, key issues in this provincial campaign, too. Yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that this is going to be a, a really important issue in the Ontario election. Um, and it, it seems really bad strategy for the the Ford government to to 
try to make an issue of this. The, the federal government is coming with more money than they've ever come with before on child care, an issue that until now, um, you know, provinces have said, oh, child care is provincial jurisdiction. There's not much role for the federal government. And the federal government has stepped up and said, we want to help. We're going to come with big money to help you make this happen. But that doesn't mean that the provinces can then, you know, sort of shirk responsibility for what, you know, they should be doing on this issue themselves. Um, what's troubling is that uh, the Ford government seems to, uh, if I go with my gut, this is a smokescreen for them not having a plan to go forward on childcare and not really treating it as a priority issue. Um, and so they're kind of making this convoluted argument about, about the money when that's not what this is about at all. Um, you know, and it's frustrating because, you know, Doug Ford has said, that, you know, the pandemic has changed the way that he sees partisanship and collaboration. You know, he spoke last year about his admiration for federal finance minister Christopher Freeland. Well, if that's true, and, you know, Ford has said, you know, COVID-19 doesn't care about partisanship. Well, neither do children and families in this province. Neither does our recovery. Um, if he's changed his thoughts on partisanship, child care is the issue to show it on, and they need to show it quickly. Now, we must also mention uh, that there has been no official response. I mean, we're not talking, mm-hmm. the Premier has not made these statements, nor have any of his ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the story that we saw today uh, basically was people that did not want to be named uh, because they're not mm-hmm. authorized to speak, but they spoke anyway. And, and one of their, their twisted pieces of logic here, and I just want our listeners to understand this, uh, they said, no, we're not going to sign on to this because we don't want another Medicare, uh, basically assuming that, you know, back in 1964, uh, when that deal was signed between the Canadian government and the, and the provinces, it was supposed to be 50-50 split. Well, we all know that those numbers have changed over the years. So they're afraid that a future federal government, either liberal conservative, mm-hmm. whatever, may back away from this deal or may start cutting funding. That might or might not happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But, you know, yeah. to say, well, I'm not going to sign on to the deal, that's like saying I'm not going to go out today because I might get hit by a meteor. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, come on. This is the here and now. This is uh, this is uh, this is $10 billion they're looking at here. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't understand why these guys are, are going to be so, you know, partisan about it. That's really what this comes down to. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. And, um, and you know, you're right. The, this claim that, you know, oh, at some point, what if the federal government backs away? You know, that could happen on any issue. This is the nature sure. of intergovernmental negotiations. But the federal government has been about as clear as they could be that this is a permanent commitment on their part. Um, and they have plans to bring in uh, federal legislation on child care to sort of enshrine this. Um, and, you know, they've promised this to be permanent funding. And, you know, the deal in front of the Ford government right now is not cost shared, 50-50, 80-20 or anything else. This is the federal government coming with money, not requiring cost matching, and saying this is money to help you um, make childcare fees more affordable in the province, to increase the wages of ECEs, and to expand services. So it seems like really solid, good objectives, and uh, and money to do it. So I just wish they would sign the deal, get this done, and, and so that the childcare sector can then get to work making it happen in communities. Yeah, there's a lot of work yet to be done, but you got to sign on before we can actually start some of that stuff. And yeah, and, and, and this one. whole idea, whole idea that well, you know, we're afraid a future government may cancel their their commitment to this, uh, kind of like what his government did when they got elected, you know, with their child care program and with the environmental program. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the little it's a little hypocritical, I think, for them to actually go down that road. Uh, Carolyn, keep fighting the good fight here. We're going to keep talking about this as well, and hopefully, we'll get the government on side and uh, we can move forward on this. This is what Canadians want and have been mm-hmm. wanting for the last 25 years, and we're 
this close to it right now. Uh, you yeah. don't want to see somebody throwing a monkey wrench into the, the, the gears right now, do you? Yeah, absolutely. This is a historic moment for childcare, and it's a chance to really move forward, and that's what they've got to do. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. You betcha, Carolyn. Let's stay in touch. Carolyn Ferns, the policy coordinator for the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 571 days after the U.S. closed its land borders with Canada, uh, reopening is officially on the horizon. Within a matter of weeks, apparently, fully vaccinated nationals, including Canadians, of course, are going to be able to travel into the United States. Reggie Giacchini has the details. Amid mounting pressure, rising vaccine rates, and a recent downward trend in COVID-19 cases, the White House has signaled intent to once again welcome in foreign travelers at its land borders. Fully vaccinated people will be able to cross starting in early November for non-essential reasons like visiting family or shopping. Status will be asked by a border guard who will have discretion on whether proof will be required. Essential travelers like truck drivers won't be required to be vaccinated until early January when everyone, regardless of travel reason, will need to be vaxxed. Asked about Canadians who received mixed doses, the White House says the CDC is working on that with a decision coming in a matter of weeks, adding the CDC will also likely allow those with AstraZeneca as it's considered a WHO-approved vaccine. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Now, if there's anybody more happy to hear that than our next guest, uh, Jim Deodati is the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show. Mr. Mayor, I know how busy you are today. Really, I appreciate you jumping in for a few minutes. Uh, good news as far as you guys are concerned. Oh, it's great news. So long overdue, but we're happy to take it. So yeah, we're uh, we're thrilled and we're doing cartwheels right now. Uh, as you know, I, I, boy, back in the seventies, my first radio jobs were down in St. Catharines. So of course, we're down in Niagara Falls all the time. Uh, maybe you could just remind our listeners about the importance of cross-border traffic uh, between uh, those two great cities, so Niagara Falls, Ontario, and Niagara Falls, uh, New York. It, it, even the casual back and forth, you know, maybe just a day trip over to a restaurant or something. Oh, yeah. Well, we call it going over the river or over yeah. the ditch. And I knew they say the same thing in Windsor, Detroit. And for us, it's just a way of life. We're one big city divided by a border. And as a kid, you didn't even carry ID. And then after 9-11, you carried a passport. Now, after COVID, we'll carry a passport and a vaccine passport, I guess. But it's just a way of life to go shopping, visiting family, friends, go see a movie, buy some gas, buy some beer, uh, go to the Buffalo airport, catch an NFL football game, the Sabres. So, yeah, it's just something we just do. It's like going across town. So it's been very, very disruptive to families and friends, especially, and, of course, the economy. Niagara Falls is the number one leisure destination in the country. We get 14 million people here, and 25% typically come from the U.S., and they represent 50% of the revenue. So all of a sudden, that was cut off overnight. Now it's been a trickle where we've slowly let Americans back into Canada, but with a lot of restrictions around testing and vaccinations. And now the the U.S. is going to finally reciprocate. And I can tell you, Bill, I'm in regular contact with senators and congressmen and border city mayors on both sides. And this is so long overdue, and we're so grateful that it's finally here. Curious to hear all the finer details, but the fact that we're finally having this discussion, we're, we're over the moon. Well, this, there's an argument to be made, though, isn't there, Jim, that this is that whole area can be looked at as one great big community. I mean, you, you include a buffalo in there, and I think that's right. It's just a, cu- a couple of clicks away. Uh, I can remember when I was down there in the 70s, uh, the great Rick Jenneret, of course, who called Buffalo yeah. Sabres games for 8,000 years, actually started out in the Niagara Falls radio station. He did Niagara Falls Flyers games there for the longest time and, and went back and forth across the border. It was, it, it was just like, as you say, separated by a, a couple of bridges, and you could walk across the bridges back in those days. But from an economic standpoint, you really need that traffic back and forth, don't you? 
100% we do for so many reasons. And there's so many businesses that are right along the border, right near the bridges, that are used to getting that cross-border shopping. And they haven't had that for 19 months. It's been, it's been devastating. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Rick Jenneret. Uh, Rick's grandson plays baseball in my son's team, so I oh, yeah. get to see him during the summer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was the voice of the Sabres. And, oh, yeah, he's a legend all right. So, and there's another guy that would regularly cross over to, to, to call the games. And uh, I know there's so many of us that have been disrupted by this, whether you go to the school in the U.S., you've got family in the U.S., whether you own property in the U.S. or vice versa. It's been disruptive. It's like picture the city you live in right now getting cut in half, and you're told you can no longer cross into that side of the city. And, and you think, oh, my gosh, you don't realize how many things you need to do to get into that part of town, which you can't do any longer. So we're grateful that we'll be allowed to cross into that part of town again because, as you say, we see it as one big city divided by a border and I've got family on both sides friends on both sides and we're all in the same boat it's very it's been very very disruptive and you know it's had a negative effect on people's mental health as well as financial health so it, this is just it's just such great news we're just so grateful that it's finally coming well, we're big fans. I mean, you know, we will go and spend weekends in Niagara Falls at some of the great hotels there. But you're right. You look right across there, and there, there's the hotels on the other side of the border. And it's so close, so far away when everything's shut down like this. Uh, the, the, now, the reciprocal agreement here, the Americans have been able to come over for the last little while here. Uh, and you and I talked back in the dark days of the shutdowns and the lockdowns yeah. and everything. How have your businesses been responding? Are you starting to see an uptick now? We are, but it's slow. And the main reason is because Canada still requires COVID testing. And it's a challenge because, you know, if you've got to pay for it, if it's a rapid test, it can cost you a thousand bucks for your family to get tested. So it's definitely restrictive, especially when, you know, we're a day's drive to almost half the population of North America. So most people drive here. And if it's a family and you've booked your hotel and your attractions and your food and, you know, it's going to cost you a few bucks and there's another thousand added on, some families say, yeah, you know what, that's a little too much. And they don't make that trip. So, we, you know, we're going under the premise that vaccines work. We know they do. And we're hoping that the fact that everybody's got to be fully vaccinated, we're going to be reasonable with the testing. So that's the part that we're curious to find out more details on. And also the U.S., I'm glad they're finally acknowledging AstraZeneca following the World Health Organization's guidelines. And now we're just waiting for some final details on mixed doses because a lot of people did get mixed because in the beginning, everyone was told, just get the vaccines, don't matter what ones you get. And we just want to make sure they'll, they'll be recognized as well. Well, and that's one of the points I wanted to, to get clarified as well, and I'm waiting for that from Washington, about the AstraZeneca. Because remember, at first, uh, remember when Broadway announced they were going to reopen uh, in New York City, uh, they said, yeah, but if you have AstraZeneca, you can't go. And then they changed their minds about 48 hours later because, you know, the WHA, World Health Organization, changed it. I'm surprised it's still part of the discussion and the debate. I guess the federal government really has to rule on that, don't they? Well, they do, and and I'm surprised as you are because I mean AstraZeneca is also manufactured in the U.S. Yeah. So so why it's not recognized there? And 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 I mean I think and again you know this is I'm low down the pay scale here in terms of decision makers, <laughs> but I really believe we follow the World Health Organization's guidelines because this way it's consistent around the world. We're all using uh, the same rules, the same playbook, and there's consistency because it's confusing for people right now. There's so many different vaccines, so many different 
different tests. There's so many sets of rules, and it'd just be nice if they could be more consistent, like they are with passports, like they are with other things, just agree to one set of rules that are reasonable and based on science, and, uh, and I'm hoping that's where they're going to land. And I know the Americans are excited with, you know, their American Thanksgiving not too far away, that Canadians once again will be able to return and visit, and people that right now have decided not to come to the U.S. will once again come, because it's had a, a devastating effect on the U.S. economy as well, when the Canadians, the millions of Canadians that, especially the snowbirds that are not coming, it's having a major effect, and I know there's a lot of pressure on President Biden to finally open things up again. Uh, we got to jump in because I know your time is tight, but just before we finish, uh, a shout out to uh, Representative Brian Higgins. He's a New York Democratic congressman there. Uh, this is He's been like a, a dog with a bone in this, and he has been relentless in pursuing uh, this in Washington with the Biden administration. Uh, he's got to be a happy guy. Uh, and without that kind of advocacy, I don't know if it would have happened this quickly. No, and I know he's got a press conference on the Peace Bridge today, and he's been outstanding. We talk regularly, and you nailed it, dog with a bone. And he said, this makes no sense. And he spent a lot of his time in Canada. He told me, you know, where I'd play hockey in Fort Erie, and he'd go for runs along Lake Erie on the Canadian side. And he's got a, as a lot of Americans do, they have a lot of connections to Canada. They love Canada. And he was just so, so frustrated. And he's been definitely making a lot of noise on this one, along with many other elected officials. And fine. Finally, finally, we feel like our, our efforts are being rewarded and our voices are being heard. So let's open it up. You betcha. Good news today. Uh, as you say, details to come, but uh, the, the, the takeaway here is that it's going to reopen. Uh, Jim, I, thanks again for the time today. We'll stay in touch as this uh, happens over the next few days, okay? Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Jim Deodati, of course, the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario. Uh, very excited about the news about the border reopening, which we're told is going to be early November. Uh, we're not exactly sure of the date, uh, but at least at least we're having that discussion now anyway. This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML Hamilton. As we mentioned uh, earlier in the program, uh, as the humanitarian crisis looms in Afghanistan, and we've seen some of the pictures of refugee camps and people trying to get out of Afghanistan, the G20 leaders say that they have to deal directly with the Taliban government when it comes to aid and assistance. Make Williams has details. Before the August pullout of Western forces, Afghanistan was already struggling with drought, war and widespread poverty. Now, once again under the rule of the Taliban, its economy has all but imploded, prompting an emergency G20 meeting hosted by Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. There's no alternative to having contacts with them. They are essential for this response to be effective. But that doesn't imply a recognition. Recognition, Draghi said, would only come when the international community agrees the Taliban has made progress on human rights for women and others. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. So how does our government deal with uh, this conundrum? Uh, well, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Chris Kilford. Uh, Dr. Kilford is the president of the Canadian International Council, Victoria Branch, and a fellow at the Queen's Centre for International and Defence Policy. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. I'm glad to be here. How do we rationalize something like this? You know, we're Canadians, we, we feel uh, the angst and, and we see the pictures of what's going on with refugees and the people trying to escape Afghanistan. Uh, but you're dealing with the Taliban here when we start sending aid over there, and there's a lot of trepidation about where this stuff's going to end up when we send it over there. How, what, what, what's, there's no black and white solution here, I guess, but how do we proceed? Yeah, it's a, it's a real dilemma, and I served there for a year myself in 2009 to 2010 at our at our embassy is the deputy military attache. So I kind of, I can have a, I have a feeling for, for what it's like there and the dilemma now that we face as a country about what to do. Because the simple fact is for us, you know, we list the Taliban as a terrorist organization. So 
now dealing with what we call a terrorist organization presents a big problem for us. Yet, as you say, you know, we've got a lot of people that, that need help, and uh, they needed help before. I think, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the folks that are listening, you know, Afghanistan has always depended upon foreign aid. You know, roughly 40% of their gross domestic product was built around foreign aid, and to have it taken away, well, we're seeing the results now. And, and Canada, the European Union, the United States are all now having to figure out what to do. I think also for the Taliban, it's, it's, it's difficult for them, um, if we can empathize with them for just a moment. Uh, they technically won the war, but now they're having to turn to the very people that they, they threw out of Afghanistan to literally save them from oblivion. So they've, they've had to essentially grovel to the United States and the European Union and others to help them out. Otherwise, this country is going to implode. What are you hearing about uh, the current conditions there? I mean, you know, the, the hours after uh, they took over the capital, they were saying, okay, we're not the the same old Taliban. I'm not trying to be, you know, flippant about this, but, you know, we're Taliban point two, some people are referring to it. Uh, we're not as, as strict. We're not going to be as, as dogmatic as we were before. Uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot of evidence to see it, that there have been those changes. What, what have you seen, Jim, or Chris? Sorry. Yeah, well, no, I'm getting, you know, a lot of emails from people in Afghanistan, and we've been holding a lot of events uh, focused on the situation there. Um, it's, it, it's, it's not good. Uh, but uh, as I've said to, to many people, the Taliban were probably the most surprised of anyone that they found themselves in power so quickly. They only came into power on the 15th of August taking over what essentially is a real mess, and they've only been there for for two months. And I think another dilemma for us, of course, is tying aid to conditions and pushing the Taliban in in various directions when they're still trying to figure out what they're actually doing and and running ministries and running the country. I mean, it is is a challenge for them. And that's so the third dilemma is, do we actually help them out? Because one could argue that it's, you know, I look at most Canadians would say, don't give them any money at all. Uh, send the money somehow through the UN and other agencies, NGOs, get it into the hands of the Afghan people. And that's, that's fine. That's perfect. But of course, you're still supporting the Taliban government if you, if you do that, because you're taking some stress off of them. So no matter what we do, we end up supporting the Taliban. And I think the question for us is, we have to ask ourselves, is this in our own self-interests really to do? If you don't like it, but is it in your own self-interests? And many European countries would say, yes, it's in our self-interests, because we simply don't want to have a failed state. We don't want to see refugees coming through Iran and Turkey and into Europe. We, we want to avoid that. It's already been destabilizing with previous waves of refugees coming from the Middle East. And so it's in our self-interest to make sure that this country doesn't implode. And I, so these are all the discussions that are going on right now in many, many Western capitals in particular. If we decide to go forward on this, though, from your experience and from what you've heard lately, is there a, a, a supply chain infrastructure there for this to happen? Or do you just drop it off at the airport and, and hope for the best? Well, one of the things that, you know, all of the aid that we've given to Afghanistan, in the case of Canada, is mounted to $3.6 billion since 2001. All of the aid that, that did go into Afghanistan did build the um, infrastructure and the supply chains. Uh, it's all there. I mean, it's not perfect. 
so it's just a case of uh, revitalizing it all with with the assistance and i think the aid would go in and, and it would move around and 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 you know things would be fine but the fact is you are supporting a, a, a as i said before a government that we recognize as a terrorist organization so do we now at some point in ottawa say well we um the taliban are are better than they used to be, so therefore we no longer consider them a terrorist organization. I, I think it's so hard for for governments to do a 180 degree on this. Uh, it's going to take some time, if if ever. And I think what we'll simply see is, uh, you know, conditional engagement taking place. And frankly, it's also in the Taliban self-interest to behave. Uh, but like I said, they've only been in power for two months. And uh, we were at it for 20 years with the last lot that were there. So um, two months is not a lot of time when we think about it. So I, so we'll, we'll be we'll have to be keep, you know keep revisiting this over the over the next uh, month, year, two years to see how it actually all does play out. Exactly. Well, as I mentioned, G20 nations are talking about this because we're all on the same page here, and uh, we're going to see how this develops. Uh, our time is tight. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch with this as uh, our government starts to take some action on this, too. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time Thank today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Take care. That's Dr. Chris Kilford, of course, who spent some time on the ground in Afghanistan and knows what he speaks about supply chains and, and getting the aid, whatever form it's going to take, whether it's going to be food, medical supplies, whatever the case might be, uh, to the people who need it most, uh, that being you know the everyday people of, of Afghanistan who are in dire circumstances these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to give you an update on a story that we brought to you about a week or so ago, and that, of course, being uh, the move by the Canadian government to invoke a long-standing treaty between uh, Canada and the United States uh, to try to keep the Line 5 cross-border pipeline in operation. We already know, of course, that uh, Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer uh, wants the thing shut down, and uh, the Canadian government is being rather proactive on this. Uh, surprisingly, not really, a number of environmental groups are pressuring the White House right now uh, basically to tell Canada to go take a hike. Uh, that's not their words, but I think that's the essence of the message. So where's this going? Uh, Ian Lee is going to join us. He is the assistant professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, and uh, Ian, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. We knew this was going to be confrontational. We knew heads were going to be butting on this. Uh, you know, environmentalists versus uh, energy needs, which are still very, very important to us. Uh, what do you see? Maybe I haven't talked to you about this for a few days now. Uh, first of all, your, your read on, on the Canadian government's move, and, and where do you think this is going to lead us? Uh, I applaud the uh, government of Canada. I don't think it had any alternative uh, because the uh, discussions, negotiations, between the company Enbridge and the government were at a stalemate, um, and the government of Michigan said so, and Enbridge, I believe, said so as well. Um, and there was no... Uh, uh, Michigan wants to stop Enbridge from rebuilding this, yes, older line that's some 60-odd years old. They want to build it with a, this um, concrete case, basically, underneath the uh, water, the body of water, and uh, it's going to be vastly, vastly superior and stronger and safer and all that. They stopped, um, uh, the government of Michigan stopped Enbridge from proceeding, even though it had signed the agreement with the previous government. It was a Republican government, yeah. a state government. And um, so where I'm going with this is I don't believe this has anything to do with public safety because you can deconstruct their and shoot down their argument right away. Enbridge has said, we're going to rebuild it <laughs> and make it really safe. And so this is about um, their 
uh, agenda, progressive agenda, to stop pipelines. And why, now to bring it right up to the moment, um, and maybe I really misunderstand, but I have looked at this very closely in terms of who's going to get, whose ox will be gored. Yes, southern Ontario will take a big hit if it's shut down. It's going to cause real shortages in southern Ontario. But it's not just southern Ontario. It's the upper Midwest gets a lot of energy from this. And for that reason, Bill, President Biden, who is a centrist, has been all his life, and yes, he is between a rock and a hard place because there's a war going on inside the Democratic Party between the centrist moderates and the progressive uh, woke radicals, whatever word you want to call them. Uh, maybe that's too loaded, just call them progressives. And he, at the, at the end of the day, if he says, you know what, I'm going to shoot down Canada on this, we're going to close it down, what he's doing is and there's very good evidence that he's going to create shortages. As we're going into the winter in the upper Midwest, which for those who've never been listening to your show have never been to Michigan in the winter or Wisconsin, it's worse there than Ottawa for cold winter temperatures. And a lot of them use propane because they don't have gas lines up there, and Line 5 delivers amongst other things, the, the, the food stock for the propane. So I, even though I'm sure he's going to try and avoid this because he doesn't want to get involved in this fight inside his own party, the fight, the fight is already there. It's going on publicly in the Washington Post pages, not over line five, about the larger agenda of the progressives against the moderates. And, but the, I think the deal, the clincher for Biden is when he's fully briefed, and he will be fully briefed, uh, of all the consequences on both sides, whichever way he goes, and when his advisors say, oh, and by the way, Mr. President, there are going to be people who will not be able to heat their homes in January if this line closes. Are you okay with that, President Biden? And I think he's going to say, we've got a very close race next year in the Senate. There's a lot of evidence that says we might even lose it. And do we really want to alienate the voters of the upper Midwest of the United States with such a draconian announcement policy that will duplicate the shortages of Europe and China. And I don't, I just can't see Biden doing that. I just can't. It doesn't make sense. Well, I'll throw another, I'll throw another chip on the table here as I ante up here. And uh, not just the Senate, he could lose the House of Representatives too. And so uh, there's yes. some predictions right now that, you know, people are getting a little soured uh, by some of the things that are happening right now. Some of it, you know, beyond the control of the administration. But you, when you're in the Oval Office in the White House, you take the hit for just about everything that goes wrong. Yes. That, that yeah. goes with the job. Uh, so he's got to tread lightly here when it comes to, to the political side of things. Uh, the other element to this, though, is, is the practicality of this. Now, we've talked on this program with some environmental groups about this, and we've listened to their concerns about this. And, there's, yeah, we're concerned about spills, and there have been some spills with Ambridge, uh, and not with this one in Lake Michigan, but in another part of the pipeline yeah. uh, there have been some spills. But for my read on this, and I'm by no means an engineering expert here, what I'm surmising from what I've read on this is what Enbridge is proposing here is to fix all the things that are wrong with the exactly. pipeline and say, yes. okay, we're going to make it safer now. That's correct. And I've read the, the file on this, and that's why when I first started reading it, I thought, you know, Ian, there's something you're not getting here. <laughs> Enbridge has promised to spend a huge amount of money to essentially rebuild the line and encase it in a concrete uh, box underground, almost like an LRT underground, okay? 
and it's going to make it unbelievably safe using the very latest sensors that most pipelines don't use. And the Americans have, two, according to the U.S. government, over 2.5 million miles of pipelines in the States, gas and oil pipelines. This will be the safest pipeline in North America. And here they are, the environmental group, saying it's dangerous, and they're saying to Enbridge, you must not replace it and make it safer. Like, this, this is almost in the realm of Kafkaesque. It's so crazy. It's so upside-down backward. And, you know, if Enbridge was saying, look, yes, it's old, but we're not going to replace it because we think it's safe, they might have a, a valid point. But Enbridge is agreeing, and they're saying, look, we're going to fix the whole thing from beginning to end and spend hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're saying, no, you must not fix the pipeline because what? Because that will make it safer when you're claiming the environmental groups are claiming it's dangerous as it is now. So where I'm going with this is I think it is ideological. It's not about the safety of the pipeline because it will be replaced by a vastly safer pipeline. It's about the larger agenda to shut down um, fossil fuels. And where I think that this is a much bigger issue than Line 5, Bill, uh, I think we're approaching uh, soon, and I don't mean tomorrow morning, but in the you know next one or two or three years or so, we're approaching in both Canada and the United States because both countries rely extremely heavily on natural gas. It's the largest single source of energy in both countries. And we're approaching a, when I say a confrontation, I mean we're approaching a, a very um, a tipping point uh, because... The environmental groups are just absolutely determined they want to shut down these pipelines. And yet, and I've said this over and over, when you close down more and more pipelines, what you are doing is creating future energy shortages. Why? Because, and this has been my criticism of Mr. Trudeau and other governments, is they're not focused like a laser beam on saying, we've got to rebuild the grid, we've got to build alternative sources of green renewable energy to displace and replace all the oil and gas that's being used before we pull the plug. They're saying, let's pull the plug first on oil and gas that accounts for 80% of all energy in the United States. Let's pull the plug, and then we'll, we'll worry about the consequences later. And we're seeing something similar, not identical, but something similar to that approach in Europe. And it culminates at the end game of serious shortages. And when we get closer to that point, and then the ordinary people who don't pay attention to these debates and arguments because they're busy with their lives, when it becomes apparent that, hey, I might not be able to heat my house in January in Michigan or Wisconsin or uh, Ontario, I believe that's when all hell is going to break loose because people just, it will freak them out. It, it will scare the, the daylights out of them. This isn't, and, and about, this isn't about some discretionary thing. I, I don't have enough money to go on a holiday this year. I'll postpone it. You can't postpone heating your house in January. You have no choice. 
The problem, though, Ian, as you and I have talked about in the past, is is there's a, a, an attempt, I guess, probably from people on both sides, to polarize this and simply say, look, if you if you want to keep this thing open, then you're a, you're a Luddite that has no idea what, what the future is and what it's doing to the planet. No, I, not at all, not at all. But Because the other side of this, as you say, we're not there yet. To shut this down right now and says, okay, we're not ready, we don't have the alternative fuels uh, lined up to be able to, to, to take the capacity right now, that's like sawing a tree branch off while you're sitting on it. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're, it's it's not the time. We want to get there. You know, we we know about the government's commitment on both sides of the border uh, for all electric vehicles, and you know the auto manufacturers seem to be on side with that. But they're talking 10, 15 years out. And in yeah. the meantime, we we need the energy, not just to heat the homes, and that's a big part of it. Uh, but but for the technology to develop, I mean, you know, we're, we're looking. My wife and I spent the weekend looking at some models of electric cars, thinking, well, that's what we've got to be thinking of. But first of all, as as we've talked about, Tesla's going to have to understand the fact that you can't test drive something in Southern California and say, okay, that's going to be great now for you know Minnesota and and Northern Ontario because cold weather affects batteries and they haven't solved that problem totally yet. So there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Uh, and I, I I share your your feelings on this and the concerns that if you do this to plan some of the environmentalists and God bless them because they, they have the right idea it's the time frame I think that we're arguing about here not whether or not we should be doing this that's right and if I, just before I run out of time I want to bring out one other there was a wonderful article published only four days ago in Washington by an environmentalist in a magazine called foreign policy but it had nothing to do with foreign policy really and he's a well noted environmentalist in the states and he was looking at the energy crisis in Europe and China and what he was saying, basically, and he was critical of environmentalists, was saying, look, and he's analyzed it deeply. He said, yes, we need more alternatives, meaning wind and solar. But he said, you cannot completely run an energy system in a modern economy with 100% wind and solar. And he went into the engineering reasons. There's very profound reasons, but it basically can be reduced to the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow, no matter how much you scale up the alternatives. So his point was, Environmentalists have not confronted the fact that when you have a full green wind and solar system, you must have a parallel backup, and it's either going to be nuclear or it's going to be fossil fuels called gas and oil. And he said they don't want either oil, uh, nuclear or oil and gas. And he said there is, you cannot run a system with 100% wind and solar. You have to have the backup system there for when the sun doesn't always shine, etc. Okay? So his point was the crisis in Europe was caused because they shut down the nuclear and they, don't, and and they got rid of uh, quite a few uh, fossil fuel plants. And so they created the shortage. He said you've got to do A or B. You're either going to have fossil fuel as your backup uh, or you're going to have nuclear. I, it was obvious this guy supports nuclear. And Seamus O'Regan, last December... The Natural Resources Minister said something very, very similar. He said, we cannot get to net zero carbon 2050 without nuclear. Which I, I know is, is going to cause some people's hair to stand to the back of their necks, but I mean, we have to look at the realities of where we are right now. Uh, a couple of minutes left here. Do a little crystal balling for us. The, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Biden administration didn't want to get into this fight at all. No. They, they kind of stood on the sidelines. Uh, Canada invoking this treaty brings the White House into this right now, so yes. he's going to have to get off the fence on this yes. when the whole administration is. Uh, 
you know, Governor Whitmer's a Democrat. She's up for re-election. Uh, this is a campaign promise she wants to keep on. So there's a political side to this as well. But uh, as you say, when Biden, Biden looks at the practicality and the pragmatism of this, uh, does he does he try to, to placate Whitmer, or does he simply say, look at, you know, I, I've got people in Minnesota and Wisconsin that rely on this too. This is not just about Sarnia. I I, I think he's going to go the latter. He may offer, who knows what he can offer governor, the governor from Michigan, his own party. We, I mean, in terms of political promises to the state, I don't know. Maybe they put in new solar panel plant or something, you know. But I cannot believe, uh, no matter how dug in she is and the people around her, I cannot believe that President Biden is going to um, do something of that magnitude that's going to literally cause millions of people to freeze in the dark. And remember, these states, people are forgetting already, these states in the upper Midwest were those five states that put President Trump, uh, sorry, candidate Trump, into the White House in 2016. Those states went Trump. And they're very um, uh, balanced states, meaning they're very very divided, meaning they're like 50-50 states. It's not a slam dunk for the Democrats. So if he goes and says, no, I'm going to side with Governor Whitman, Whitmer, Whitmer, and, 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 and shut it down, and then there's going to cause massive suffering to those voters, that is going to blow up in his face politically in the off-year elections, which are only uh, 12, 13 months away. And I can't, and Biden's not a dummy, <laughs> and he's not a radical. That's why I don't think, I think he's going to side with Canada, not because he feels sorry for us, but because he realizes the consequences are so terrible for him, Biden, and the Democratic Party if they shut down Line 5. Well, uh, the discussions continue. Uh, as I say, the, the heat is being turned on in the White House right now, uh, but there's a lot of heat being turned on in Parliament Hill, too, to make sure this thing gets done. So uh, we're going to follow the story as it develops over the next little while. Uh, Ian, as always, thanks so much for this. Great having you on the program again today. My, my pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. That's Ian Lee, of course, uh, who is the uh, assistant professor at the Sparks School of Business at Carleton University. It's it's a difficult decision, and I get that, And which is why we had some folks from, from environmental groups on over the last couple of days to talk about this, because the concerns are legitimate. We understand that. You know, okay, there's always the concern of a rupture and what might happen, and we don't want to see that kind of economic or environmental tragedy, because we have seen examples of that. Uh, but also, you know, we in this country can also bring Lac-Megantic into the conversation as well. That was that small town that essentially the t- entire town burned to the ground uh, because, th- you know, the, there was no pipeline available. They were using rail to transport uh, fuels. And, and, of course, they caught on fire, and the, well, the results were, to say, devastating. I think it would be a massive understatement. Uh, so there's that element to it. And, and that's the other part of this discussion. Uh, even if the governor is successful in shutting this down, and, and that's by no means a done deal, that stuff's still going to get moved somehow, either by rail, by truck, whatever the case might be. And there are inherent dangers with that, too. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess, where the discussion is going as far as Enbridge is concerned, is what they're proposing right now uh, is not ideal, but it might be the safe of, of the two options right now, whether it's going to be rail or it's going to be a pipeline. Anyway, lots of more discussion to have to be had rather on this over the, uh, the upcoming days and weeks, but uh, they're going to have to make a decision on this pretty quickly. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.